Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, November 20th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. I visit the American Museum of Natural History a lot. There's so much science happening there. Every time I go, I'm struck by the dioramas and lifelike models of everything from elephants to people to jellyfish. A few weeks ago, I learned about a man called Steve Quinn. He's the senior project manager for exhibitions and the mastermind and talent behind the dioramas. This week, I met him, and he took me through the process of what it takes to make an idea for an exhibit into a vivid, visceral learning experience for the public. So, I've got some news for you, Science in the City listeners. Size does matter, especially when we're talking nanoscale. On December 7th, join Science in the City for the final event in our Provocative Thinkers in Science series, an exploration into the itty-bitty tiny world of nanoscience with photographer Felice Frankel and nanotechnology engineer George Whitesides. They've got a new book out called No Small Matter, and they'll talk about the beauty, the science, the benefits, and the risks that come with the micro scale. Get your tickets online at nyas.org slash provocative thinkers. Oh, and were you too late to get a ticket to our Darwin party next Tuesday? Don't worry, you can still join us online. Register for our free live webinar at scienceandthecity.org. Oh, is this the wood shop? Well, this is the, oh. the uh, shop where all of the... Oh, uh, a full carpentry shop back wow. here. We have ovens for bending, and melting, and shaping plastics. Yeah, we it's like a boy's a, like dream workshop y- in yep, here. Yep, <laughs> we are really capable of doing everything up in this space. Wow. So once again, we have the great I'm going to give you a second to guess where we are. It's not Santa's workshop, but to me, it feels a little bit like it. We're in the exhibitions department of the American Museum of Natural History, where they create all the lifelike animals, scenes, and dioramas displayed in the museum. I've come to meet the legendary Steve Quinn. He's a senior project manager for permanent exhibitions at the museum. My focus has always been, since arriving at the museum, on these naturalistic diorama-related arts, uh, which attempt to recreate nature within the walls of the museum as a means for evoking a sense of place and an appreciation for nature and wilderness and Uh, and awareness of wildlife conservation issues. Steve came to the American Museum of Natural History in 1974 through a New York State Council on the Arts program. It was a program designed to train young artists under the watchful eye of experts. And now, after more than 35 years at the museum, Steve's the expert. Believe it or not, the exhibition department was founded. The museum realized that the best way to really teach science was to have a team of artists here in the museum recreating nature within the four walls and hired a team of artists back in 1885 uh, and has maintained a, a team of artists since that time. So the thread really has never been broken. Wow. That, um, 
and you know these unique skills are passed down from one generation of uh, artists to the next. It is. It it does strike me as kind of like that lost art of like passing down skills. Oh, sure. Steve is equal parts artist, exhibit designer, craftsman, and field naturalist. A powerful combination for his job, which requires everything from painting landscapes to airbrushing fur to collecting living plant samples from the jungle. The process of creating an exhibit is a complicated one that usually takes years. David Harvey is the Senior Vice President for Exhibitions at the museum. Really, the most important thing for us is, is the story, is the narrative, and how we're going to tell it is the next question, and whether it means that we break it down into an outline and decide that a video is the best thing or an interactive media piece or a diorama. This, is all, this all springs from what we need to do in order to convey the narrative and move it forward. So there will be times when we need to peer back into the past and not necessarily look at, say, a dinosaur or an early mammal in isolation, but we need to understand it by understanding the environment in which it evolved and adapted to. And in that case, we would clearly look at a diorama like our Liaoning diorama in our last dinosaur exhibition. Once it's decided on the best way to tell the story, a team of editors, graphic designers, and artists work together to design the elements of the exhibition. When it comes to specific dioramas, the design comes first, and then comes Steve, who's responsible for getting all the minute details right. Once that design is complete, then I would, with the curator's guidance, research the subject. Uh, if it's a contemporary scene, I would often visit the actual site, take photographic references, collect vegetation, do field sketches and field studies. If it's a prehistoric site, of course I can't jump in my time machine, but I would, as John Flynn had mentioned to you for the Extreme Mammals Diorama, visit a contemporary landscape that would parallel or be analogous to this prehistoric uh, world so that I could get a sense of topography, uh, light, uh, vegetation types, you know, water features, things like that, that I could then incorporate into the background painting and the uh, artist team could then recreate in three-dimensional form. You know, in case of prehistoric subjects, it's a lot of detective work. In the case of contemporary animals and ecosystems, it's really delving into all the sciences like mammalogy, ornithology, um, you know, herpetology, and learning animal anatomy so that you can recreate these animals. David Harvey says one of the best things about the American Museum of Natural History is that they have tons of experts in-house who can double-check their work. You know, if we're building a camel, we get to have a mammalogist come up and consult with us every day. Is that bone right? Is that, you know, it's like forensic medicine reconstruction. We don't build things for an effect. What we do is we build things and create things that are so accurate and correct that their effect actually goes beyond what we might have originally intended. Details in place, the team builds a tiny scale model of the entire exhibit. Last week, the museum opened its newest exhibition, Traveling the Silk Road. Coming up after the break, We'll check out the scale model of the Silk Road exhibition that Steve's team used to build the real thing. Science in the City needs your help. Yes, yours. 
We know you like our podcasts. You're listening right now. But did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science and the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org slash donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. All right, so we've stumbled on what is like a child's dollhouse dream of basically the Silk Road, right? Yep. This is the exhibition, uh, the scale model of the exhibition, Silk Roads. You will see when you visit the exhibit that this is complete in every detail. So this is the area that I was primarily involved in for this exhibition, this immersive entrance area that kind of creates the effect of being in the desert. We are really looking at a miniature exhibit from above. Even the tiny lighting works. Steve points to the entranceway of the exhibit where three impossibly detailed two-inch-high camels are posed in a line. And you can see, you know, you can trace the whole uh, pathway that people will take through the exhibition. The scale model of the exhibit is the last step in preparation before the art team starts to build the real thing. We head upstairs to the workshop because Steve tells me there are still remnants of the Silk Road exhibition's construction lying around that we can check out. All right, we're up another floor. Oh, wow. So this is the exhibition uh, production studio. This building, by the way, was built in 1932 and occupied uh, in 1933 and uh, in 1936 uh, the Hall of African Mammals, the Akeley Hall downstairs opened. So all of the big taxidermy mounts, uh, four of the big elephants, uh, the rhinoceros and all those big African mammals were done up on this floor. Uh, When the the, uh, building first opened uh, it was this floor was entirely devoted to taxidermy because that was the the uh, uh, dominant exhibit uh, form of the of the day. <laughs> now, because of uh, endangerment of uh, wild animals, the artists in the department recreate the animals with sculpture based on accurate measurements and references with the scientific department. So it's a very different uh, approach that <laughs> different we use era. today. Yeah. And the difference is clear when Steve takes me into a back workshop and we see some of the work for Silk Road. Mounts, we have a MIG and TIG welding station, so we can do all of our own iron and steel work for really big... Oh, wow. Look at this. This is so crazy. This is a great big uh, ventilating hood that you see here uh, that will filter the air when we are casting models in resins like fiberglass. This is a fiberglass camel. Correct. This is the big (laughs) mold uh, in which the four life-size dromedary uh, camels that you'll see in Silk Roads were cast. Wow. And a team of artists went up to the Bronx Zoo where they studied, sketched, photographed, and measured uh, the dromedary camels that are up to... I'm sorry, not dromedaries. These were Bactrian camels, the two humped camels. Uh, Based on those references and measurements and photographs, they came back and sculpted a full uh, (laughs) life-size 
Bactrian camel, and then one of our artists made this beautiful rubber mold. Wow, can I touch sculpture. it? Oh, sure, yeah. The interior you can see has the details. Oh, of the wow, hair. and it feels like like on the inside, it feels like um, like is it silicone or? It is. It's a silicone rubber mold, and it has every little hair made into it. Yep, sculpted to sculpted. get the correct texture of camel oh hides. And so you cast, you said four camels from this. Yes. So you can you can use it for multiple. Yep. Yep. How have you seen materials change in your time? In my tenure here, 1974, <laughs> of course, plastics were already here on the scene. You know, there was fiberglass and epoxy, uh, but there were still the older artists who were still working here used a lot of plaster wow. and wax, beeswax, uh, and uh, oil paints. Today, of course, you know, we really use a lot of uh, polymers, acrylic paints, um, polyurethanes, uh, silicone rubber molds, mm-hmm. things like that. So the materials definitely have, makes me feel old. For instance, some animals, uh, Traditionally, the, the actual preserved skins were used when they were displayed, things like fish <laughs> and snakes and lizards. Uh, today, we will take the specimens from the collections and make a mold of them, a highly accurate detailed mold in a silicone rubber, and cast them in a, an acrylic resin. This way, when you put the skin on uh, display, the oils and the fats over time turn rancid and discolor, and there's always the chance of insect uh, uh, problems. So uh, with a highly detailed, accurate mold, and then with an artist uh, replacing the color and restoring the color, you have a model that's going to last forever with no maintenance issues or problems at all. So Materials aren't the only thing that change in Steve's line of work. The science is always changing. As we head downstairs to check out the Silk Road exhibit, we pass a mini model of the famous blue whale that hangs from the ceiling in the Hall of Ocean Life. And we have our uh, various examples of past projects. We have this big model of the blue whale, which was used in the uh, renovation and redesign of our Hall of Ocean Life. Uh, we had to reconfigure the anatomy of the whale because the old one was based on real old... Uh, Um, outdated information uh, that was gathered at an old whaling station where the animal was dragged uh, ashore prior to being processed. So the the, uh, anatomy was distorted and incorrect. So in the renovation, we corrected the skull and the head and the shape of the jaw, um, the fluke tail flukes, and also included uh, a blowhole, uh, which the animal never uh, possessed in the past as well. So, <laughs> Do you find yourself doing that a lot? I mean, it's cool that you've been here long enough that you can kind of um, see how, I guess, new data would be discovered or that sort of thing, but do you find yourself going back and changing things that you've already done often, or is that kind of a rare occurrence? Oh, definitely, absolutely. Uh, For instance, our whole of human biology uh, has changed three times since I've been here at the museum. Wow. Uh, When I first came, it had just opened and uh, depicted the science as it was known then. Uh, Then in the early 90s, we opened another hall, um, the Hall of Human Biology and Evolution, and now it's uh, the Hall of uh, uh, Human Evolution. As we walk towards the exhibit, we pass halls of dioramas and scenes that Steve has had a literal hand in creating. 
Out of curiosity, I ask him what has been the most difficult exhibition he's ever worked on. Probably, I would have to say, the uh, recreation of the African rainforest in the Biodiversity Hall. It's a very large walk-through ecosystem. We recreated the rainforest uh, by actually going to the Central African Republic. We were there in the field for six weeks, you know, gathering the references and collecting the data that we would need to recreate the forest back here in the museum. And it, it told a really important story. And rainforests are kind of emblematic of the biodiversity crisis, the loss of, of species uh, in the world today. Once we returned with all these collected materials and plant specimens and references, we then had to build this full-size uh, recreation of the rainforest. So that was probably, when you consider the field work, uh, one of the most difficult uh, projects. All right, here we are at the Silk Road. Oh, wow. <laughs> Here they are. That's the reaction we're after. So here we are at the entrance, um, and around us is this total 120-foot acrylic mural of the Taklamakan Desert. And there were two artists that work on it, worked on it. I was the primary artist, but also Jack Cesario, another artist from uh, the exhibition department, uh, worked closely with me. It was such a large undertaking, hmm. and our production time was so restricted that the two of us really had to work very hard and long hours to get uh, the project completed. This huge, beautiful mural of the desert means something special for Steve as well. It's the biggest uh, diorama mural, or uh, biggest single long-running mural that I've ever done. It's just over 120 foot long. And there's not a lot of variation. It's all one it's, landscape. Yeah, it's of, just of all rolling dunes. And you can see we've plotted uh, the sun to be at your back right. as you enter into the gallery with the mm -hmm. sunlight also striking the camels uh, front on mm -hmm. so that uh, the effect on the camels is consistent with the effect in the background painting. Wow. Yes, in front of us are the camels, lumbering along through the desert scene, laden with packs strapped to their back, dusty from the sand, their eyes moist and watery. These are the camels that were cast from the mold we saw upstairs, which was first conceived in miniature form in the tiny scale model and then brought to life by sculptors. They are vividly detailed, from individual whiskers on their noses to furry necks. And, you know, when you come in, um, uh, this effect of being there is really, I would hope, uh, unique to the American Museum of Natural History. You know, you're not encountering uh, just artifact after artifact um, uh, from the ancient time but you really have this sense of place, this immer immersive sense of uh, what the ecosystem, the landscape, and uh, the method of transport was as you enter the exhibit. I've always, since being a child, uh, been passionate about uh, natural history and nature. At a very early age, I, like so many kids, loved dinosaurs loved birds, and loved to paint and sculpt them. So the working here at the museum is kind of a, a fulfillment of that 
childhood passion. You know, I've always been a, a naturalist artist, and having the opportunity to work in the field and fulfill that lifelong dream is, is a wonderful opportunity. To see Steve's work, visit the museum or check out his book called Windows on Nature. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Follow us on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash city. Or you can find us on Facebook and we'll help you find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we'd love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.